Welcome to Second Service. Glad to have you here today. And uh, this week, uh, some of the staff uh, had put out about Pastor's Appreciation Day. I think that's actually Teresa's department of the newsletter and all that stuff. But anyway, um, I do want to say I thank God for being able to be a founding pastor of this church and being here for over 28 years and the blessings that it's been my honor, all my honor. And I'm going to tell you that uh, I'd have quit a long time ago if it wasn't for the wonderful staff that I have, the pastoral staff of uh, Sherry and Carl, and the, the, she's been office manager almost as long as I've been here, and uh, uh, the, her, her whole family's support, Teresa and Roger and their whole family's support, and uh, uh, we thank God for Sam and Sarah and their family, and, and Jeff and Jessica, their family. If it wasn't for all of them, it'd be hard to keep going. And uh, back in uh, 20, back in 19 and 2010, I mean 2010, we had a, a staff meeting and I told them that in, I want to give them my 2020 vision in 2020, I would be getting close to the age of retirement. And I don't know whether I would retire in 2020 or not, but I'll be, you know, at least it's starting to be something to think about. And um, so probably if I'd have knew how bad 2020 was going to be, I might have just said 2019, you know. But uh, once I get here and I realize how great God is and how powerful God is, I want to, uh, I never want to quit on God until it's his time. And so I don't know if I've got five more years left in me or 10 more years or until he comes, but I'm willing if he's willing and, and y'all are willing. Uh, Um, but I definitely couldn't do it without this wonderful group around me, all you wonderful people here at Grace. Uh, we, we're in the book of Exodus now. We're talking about our deliverance, <clears throat> a journey through Exodus. And uh, we're going to be talking about an unstoppable God. He's unstoppable. You may say, well, why Exodus? You know, why? I mean, why do we want to study Exodus? I mean, we've done all that time in Genesis, now we're in Exodus. Well, one thing I want to tell you that in 1 Kings, the sixth chapter, the first verse, we find out that the exodus, the exodus that we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks and months, it happened 480 years later, there's the building of Solomon's temple. So we know this is 480 years prior to Solomon's temple. So when we get that date, we can also realize that this was the Exodus was around 1500 B.C. We know it's somewhere around there. We know from the last verse in the book of Genesis where it said Joseph died and he was in a tomb in Egypt. From that verse to now, uh, it just seems like it, you just turned a page, right? But it's actually about 400 years of time passes between the last verse in Genesis to the first verse in Exodus. But sometimes fool you on how long time is. When you think about 400 years, we would think about and put something that we could uh, realize uh, America has not even been a nation for 400 years. You go from 1776 to now, and so you're thinking, man, that 400 years is a long time. 400 years is a long, long time. And so we look at the story. Therefore, that makes this story about 3,500 years old. 3,500 years old. So we go... What in the world can a story that was told 
3,500 years ago have to do with us, especially when it took place in the Middle East, which is on the other side of the globe. How does this have anything to say to us? But I believe it does. I believe that Exodus gives us the freedom to cry out those big questions to God. I think that we can cry out to God the big questions and he's not offended. Questions like, God, do you care? Do you even care, God? God, do you even see what's going on in the world today? Do you see what's going on? God, do you hear? Do you hear the the groans of the people? Do you hear the cries of your people? God, are you going to act? Are you going to come to the rescue? Those are some big questions that were being asked in the book of, of Exodus back then. And I believe they're relevant to today. Do we groan? Do we wonder sometimes where God is? Do we wonder sometimes, does God really exist? We, we find in this passage here, and I, I want to think the little, uh, little, little verse that I, or little thought I like about the book of Exodus. A lot of people say, you know, when I get my life together, I'm going to turn my life over to Jesus. You know, when I can start living the Ten Commandments, then I'm going to really turn my life over to Jesus. You've got it all backwards. Even in the Exodus story, God delivered them, and then he introduced them to the Ten Commandments. So you don't have to get the Ten Commandments down before God will deliver you. You get delivered, and then he helps you understand the Ten Commandments. So it's a thing. But what kind of world are we living in today? We're living in a, a, a world full of liars, corruption, where truth has to be, you, you have to, you can't take anything anybody tells you as truth anymore. The idea of walking a mile and, and giving somebody a nickel or something that they gave you too much of and shaking hands and, and saying, you know, I'm, I'm honest Abe, that day's far gone. You know, that uh, the idea of not wanting to lie, that, that, that day and that time where uh, truth is fell in the street, where they have to have fact checkers check to see when somebody gives a speech or does a debate whether the stuff they said was a pack of lies or not. That's the world we're living in. Where sex trafficking really is a real deal. There really are people whose kids uh, are being taken and they're being put into a sex slave. And it's happening all over the country, all over the world. And uh, it's bigger than you think. We're living in a world where Reebok... You know, the shoe company Reebok has a slogan, cheat on your girlfriend, but don't cheat on your workout. Just a blatant, uh, you know, they don't care. Just throw it out there. We're living in a world where people have an app on their phone, and there's 38 million people that has put this app on their phone, and this app is for the purpose, the sole purpose of having an affair. 38 million people looking to have a an affair the political arena is corrupted another thing you look in you know cigarettes i'll give you a little good news cigarettes are way down on the college campuses that's went down a little bit but the use of pot has went way up i heard a report recently that in new york city there's more black babies aborted each year than are born 
more aborted, more murdered, killed than are born. But not to worry, Jesus said that he would build his church. Maybe not in America, but God's going to build his church. Did you know that 3,500 churches shut their doors each year? 3,500. And even though that's not bad enough, they say 80% of churches have plateaued, are in a state of decline right now. Some people saying there's going to be a lot of churches shut their doors after this COVID because they hadn't been able to stay open enough to keep the bills paid and they're just going to go away. But the good news is there's 4,000 new churches are planted every year. But the bad news is that 20%, only 20% of those 4,000 survive after three years. So we ask ourselves in 2020, God, do you see? God, are you there? God, do you care? God, are you going to act? Are you going to do something about it? And Exodus is a book that gives us permission to cry out to God. In Exodus chapter 2 and 23, during a long period, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out. It's all right for the people to cry out and ask God the big questions. One of the things, like this story is like so old, but yet could this story mean more to us than possibly even meant to them? See, we find out in Galatians writing that Paul referred to something that happened in the Old Testament that had connection with the New Testament. He, he said some of the stories that you read about in the Old Testament are allegorical and that these stories that are allegorical, they, they, they did really have people there. They were real live people. Things happened to them. But it, it had something to do with today. It was telling two stories. It was telling an additional story. Like in Galatians chapter 4, there's an allegorical story about Sarah and Hagar. A picture of them. You know, Abraham married Sarah. And she didn't have no children. And so she got her handmaiden called Hagar. Hagar. And uh, Hagar had a son named Ishma, and you know they tried to make him the promised son, but God said, "No, I said I'm going to give a child by Abraham and Sarah, and so he's not uh, he's not the chosen son." And so we we find that Paul refers to Hagar as someone that tried to work this under the law and under flesh in the flesh, and you cannot please God in the flesh. And he says, Sarah, she speaks of that that is of grace and of the spirit and of following God. And he said, so it, that, that happened was to show us something to come. And so you see like, uh, you know, they're offering Isaac on the altar and then God provided a lamb. You see these stories and you start reading these stories of the Old Testament. And you go, man, that applies like to the New Testament. You see these stories and these stories are telling multiple stories. And these stories apply to us. So what if Exodus is not just some old, old story? What if Exodus is a allegorical or allegory to represent our slavery that we're in today? What if it represents the slavery today and instead of Pharaoh, what's going on today, he's not even hiding behind some world leader's name or some uh, that we're now under the grips of a strong, powerful spirit of Satan 
who seeks to destroy us. Maybe this world, we're not living in Egypt, but we're living in a world. And back then, Egypt was a type of the world. And so we're living in a world where Satan is going crazy. Can you say amen? What if the only way, what if the only way for us to escape is to pour the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of our hearts? What if that's the only way out of here? The only way to escape our Egypt is the blood of Jesus on the doorpost. What if Exodus is telling us we need a Savior to lead us out and set us free to worship God? What if the book of Exodus, what if the book of Exodus, what if, what if it's far worse than we think? But God offers far more than we can imagine. And what I mean by that, you know, we are very concerned and we should be concerned that we get the right leader in office. But you know, God had, uh, uh, Joseph was the second man in command in Egypt. Matter of fact, uh, the sarcophagus, I said it perfect in the first service, at least the second, sarcophagus, anything, the thing he was buried in, or was going to be buried in, it had an inscription on it that he was the director of the granary, and it said, under another description said, bow the knee. And this was terms that were uh, that was been uh, given to uh, Joseph, and but Joseph Joseph said, "No, I don't want to be buried. I'm not an Egyptian. I don't. I'm not going to be named with the name of the Egyptians. You can make me whatever you want to make me, but that's not me." And I got to thinking about that this week after preaching that about the sarcophagus, and I began to think about that how that Joseph said, "No, take my bones out of Egypt. I'm not an Egyptian. I'm going to the Promised Land." And so Joseph left an empty sarcophagus. Somebody say that. Sir. Ta. Tomb. He left an empty tomb. Let's go, Doug. He left it empty. There's another Joseph, Jesus. He left an empty tomb. He left an empty tomb. You see these stories, and there's a story within a story, and these old stories are telling us what's going to happen in the new stories. What if the book of Exodus seeks to, to uh, tell us that if we're not careful, that, that this world is going to be far worse than we can imagine? You say, well, if I can get the right man in the right place, Joseph was the right man in the right place. Everywhere he went, he had the supreme word over all of Egypt. Wherever he, whatever he said went, whatever he spoke, they had to do it. Wherever he went, they bowed the knee. There's a Jesus is coming on a white horse, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. I'm going to tell you something, but here's the thing. What if the, the Egyptian would say, you know, what we want, we got Joseph on the throne there. You know, he's right under the little Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh's letting him run the country. So let's just keep praying that we keep the right man in the position. But I'm going to tell you, if they would have done that, they would have been settling. I don't know about you, but, you know, I want to fight, and I want to speak up, and I want to speak out to keep godly people in godly positions as long as I've got a breath in my body. There has been a time for the church to kind of be quiet and sit back, but then there's a time to speak up and declare the word of the Lord. And, you know, when the devil comes out of the closet, it's time for the Christians to come out of the closet. He's not, he's not bashful, he's open, he's lying, 
He's uh, lying about the church. He's lying about the word. He's lying about these things. It's time for the church to declare the truth. And we find here, what if they would have settled? I don't know about you, but I don't care if we could get all the positions in the House and the Senate's filled by Christian people. That's, I'd still not want to settle there. I want to get out of this Egypt. I want to get out of this world. I want to be in that new heaven and that new earth. I want to spend eternity with Jesus Christ. I don't want to settle for anything here. This world is not my home. I'm not planning on staying here. But until then, we'll work as hard as we can to put the right people in the right office. But what if we would be settling if we accept did this world as our reward. I don't know about you, but this world is never going to be my reward. What if the book of Exodus is more about getting Egypt out of the people rather than getting his people out of Egypt? God wants to get the Egypt, the world, out of us. And it's more important than getting us out of the world. What if the book of Exodus seeks to challenge and confront the all-stated wrongful notion that God simply exists to fill our emptiness, but instead, instead that we exist only to worship Him? What was the whole ordeal about them coming out of Egypt? The leaders that be, they said, you know, you're going to worship our gods. You'll find out later, as you know, they said, we should have stayed in Egypt where we had the ungans and leeks. They grew their gods in a garden. They grew their, their, their gods was leeks and ungans. They wanted to go back to their garden, their, their gods in their gardens, instead of the true and living God. But anyway, they had, they had to serve their God. But when Moses come, and we'll find, he said, set my people free. What did they want to do? What was the main reason God wanted to get them out of Egypt? He wanted them to be able to go out in the desert and do what? Worship him. Worship him. What is the, what is the highest aim and what is the, the most important thing for a Christian to do? Worship God. There is no higher goal than to worship God. He, you can't take credit for your salvation. You can't take credit for your deliverance. You can't take credit for none of that. You might as well just worship God because if you get out of here, it's because of God. He's unstoppable. And so we have been called to worship God. That's the chief uh, aim of man. You go back to the book of Genesis, you find out that's what man was put here for, is to worship God. God doesn't set us free for freedom's sake. But he sets us free for worship's sake. Here is the question I want to ask. What is far worse than I laid out? You know, what if it's far worse? Exodus is a story of redemption. And I like that part. And we're going to see a lot of stories in the book of Exodus about our redemption that eventually comes through Jesus Christ. But it's about redemption. It's also about freedom. It's also about restoration. What do we need to be restored from? From all the stuff that God said he was going to do for us in the garden. But we sinned against God through Adam. And because of that, a lot of the things that God has planned for us needs to be restored. He's going to restore us back. There's going to be a seed of a woman that's going to bruise Satan's head. And God one day is going to rule and reign. We're going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And then he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And forever, we'll forever be with the Lord. So here's the thing. This story, I want to tell you some stuff about this unstoppable God and his amazing story. 
One thing, this story is a story of continuance, of continuance. And the reason I say that, if you go to Exodus 1, in your, most of your Bibles, it reads, these are the names. Actually, though, if you were looking in a Hebrew Bible, it would read vos, the first word there would be vos, which is absent from this, and it starts out, and these are the names. And they'll tell you in school, you know, you don't start a sentence out with an. You do if this is not the beginning. This is a continuation. We ended in a tomb in Egypt, but God said it ain't over yet. Here's where we're at. And when we get through with Genesis, Abraham's dead. Isaac is dead. Jacob is dead. We find out here a little bit later, all the, that generation is dead. Guess what? God's not dead. God's not dead. Joseph may be in a tomb in Egypt, and he may arose to great power, but he is dead, but God is not dead. And so here is the continuing, and these. And he says in, in Exodus there, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. Who is Israel? That's Jacob. His name was changed to Israel. He had 12 sons he, who went to Egypt with Jacob and with his family, Reuben and Simon, or Simeon, and Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, and Napola, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, and Joseph was already there in Egypt. Sometimes you'll read there was 75 or you know, a bigger number. The reason was some of them were already there. Joseph's family, some of those were already there, his wife and his kids. So you put this together, and it says, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. All of them died. Now they're dead. Because I'm telling you, this is after that, in a tomb in Egypt, we're talking about 400 years later. And now they're dead. I love verse 7. They're all dead. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. In other words, he didn't, it wasn't that he didn't know Joseph. He did not regard Joseph as anybody to even be to care about. If, if he would have been, he would have been one that would have been willing to tear down Joseph's sarcophagus uh, and his, uh, his, you know, his things. The, some people come and uh, statues that meant one thing to one generation, another generation rises up, and that don't mean nothing to them. They're ready to uh, paint over it and tear it down because it means nothing to them. That's what this is talking about. A new king came on the scene, and Joseph and all that he did, it didn't mean anything to him. And uh, he had no regard for him. Uh, and it came, this, this new king came to power whom meant nothing uh, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said, to the people of the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies uh, and fight against us and leave the country. And so we find here that in this story, this is a continuation. So whatever God promised in Genesis 
It may not have been fulfilled in their lifetime. It may not have been fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime or Isaac's lifetime or Jacob, which is now Israel. But it's going to be fulfilled because God, not one jot or tittle, not one word of God will return void. God will do what he says he will do. He will accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish. And, you know, when you look at this story, God had already started a story with a people. He said he had a people. And he, God told Abraham, he said, I have made you uh, 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 the father of a great nation. Now, I want you to know when you read that in Genesis, it is spoken in the, in the present tense. God said, I have made you uh, the father of a great nation. And at that time, God was talking to an old man that was past bearing children. And he's telling this old man that's past bearing children, he said that you are the father of a great nation. And, oh, by the way, he was married, so that's a plus, but his wife was old and barren. And so that's a negative there. And, and so she's old and barren, and he's old and barren, and, and so you're going to have a great nation. Well, you know, they, they, they come by going with Hagar, and, you know, uh, this was before that time. He went with Hagar and produced Ishmael, and God said, no, I'm going, I'm going to make you are a, going to be a great nation. I, it was in the present tense. You are a great nation. We find this. When God speaks something, it happens. God is the only one that can speak thing in the present tense that is yet to come because he's the beginning, he's the middle, and he's the end. He's the first, he's the last. Whatever he says is going to happen. And so we find this, uh, and we find that what God told Jonah, he said, I want you to go and be fruitful and multiply. We find this over and over and over in Scripture. We get to Exodus 400 years later. What is still happening? They're still being fruitful and they're multiplying. They're still being fruitful and they're multiplying. And so, you know, when you think about this, that now this, this nation of people were about 2 to 3 million strong. And verse 7, uh, we find that the blessings of Abraham are also the blessings of Adam and Eve. We look now at verses 8 through 11. Then the new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. We talked about that there. That this, he, he, he didn't regard them. Uh, and we find that he arose. And, and he said there's too many people. And Pharaoh arises. Uh, Pharaoh arises. And yet this Pharaoh is going to die by the end of the second chapter. And so there's going to be another Pharaoh. The next Pharaoh is the one that we read about most through the book of uh, Exodus. But here's the thing. Sometimes they can be a, a worldly leader that's very corrupt and evil, and you know they die. You go, oh, praise God, you know, it's all over. And then you find that the next leader is worse. The next leader is worse because there's a spirit in this world. If one man ends, somebody will just pick up the mantle and go and keep spreading the evil deeds. we got to realize that we're not fighting flesh and blood, but spiritual wickedness in high places. Where one man falls, another will rise up and carry the evil on. We're seeing it all the way from Genesis all the way to now. We're finding that things are increasing. We're finding that the serpent in the garden is fixing to be the dragon in the book of Revelation. Things are increasing. Sin is increasing. It's abounding. But God said, bless God, the more that sin abounds, grace abounds more. Can you thank the Lord for that? No matter how much the devil brings on, God will supersede it because he's unstoppable. He's unstoppable. And so we find this, that uh, all that they do, they, we find in chapter 2 that they oppose the people. 
They do all these things. They, uh, they put the, the slave masters over them. They oppress them with force and labor. They built uh, Pithon and Ramses as store cities for the Pharisees. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multitude and spread. So the Egyptians came uh, to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and harsh labor in brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields. And in their harsh labor, the Egyptian worked ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name was Shaphar and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth onto the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. We see this story that is taking place here. And, and, and God, the more they oppress God's people, the more they multiply. How many knows that the devil's turning up his, uh, he, he's mad, he knows his time is short, He's, he's, he's just amplifying everything. He's getting madder and madder. But I'm telling you, the more he does, the more God does. He made them work harder. He said, we're going to kill all the babies. If you see, a, uh, as these midwives would come, if you see a baby and it's a boy, we want, you to heal, heal, we want you to kill them. But the Bible says, but, I love that, but there again, verse 17, but the midwives feared God. Here's a pattern that begins in the book of Genesis and continues not just in the Exodus story, but continues all the way through now. Joseph dies, but they multiply. They are afflicted, and they're put through slavery, and yet they multiply. They are put through genocide and ordered, uh, but they multiplied. But God's not done. Look at verses 18 through 21. 18 through 21, we see God still working. And it says, but he said, if you have, if there's any girls, you can let them live. And, and they did not what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned them. He didn't like that. He summoned them. And the midwives asked them, they asked the midwives, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, the Hebrew women. In other words, what they did, they lied. The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous, and they give birth before the midwives even arrive. It's like they were working in the field, and pop, comes out a baby. You know, hey, there he goes, baby. But that's not totally true. They were keeping those babies alive. When the Hebrews, they did not fear the king, and they were not going to kill no babies. It's amazing all the way through uh, the scriptures you will find the enemy hating and killing babies. They hate and kill babies. Even in Jesus' time, they hated and killed babies. You can find false religion. They offered babies as sacrifices. He hates babies. He hates any seed that's coming forth because the devil is shaking in his boots because he knows he's fixing to be bruised. He's fixing to be locked up for a thousand-year reign of God Almighty. You see... No matter what the enemy, it's like a chessboard. Every time he moved here, God moved here. Every time he moved here, God moved here. Every time he moved there, God moved there. I'm telling you, God is in control. And so they feared God. And it said that here's what God did for them. And uh, they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives. 
and the people increased and became even more numerous. So no matter what they did, they tried to tell the midwives, if you, if you let these babies, you know, something's going to happen. They didn't fear the king. They let the babies come anyway. And it said, so God's people kept increasing. And guess what? Because these little women feared God that was giving, helping give birth to these babies, that God saw their courageousness. God saw what they were doing and saw that they feared God, and he gave them families of their own too. You can't be God. And so Pharaoh gave this order that all people, everywhere, every Hebrew boy that was born, you must throw them in the Nile River, but let every girl live. So we see this story, this pattern begin. Joseph dies, they multiply. They're afflicted in slavery, they multiply. Genocide is ordered, but they multiply. They lied, these midwives. But here's the elephant in the room that sometimes we focus on more than anything. The elephant in the room is God's name is not mentioned in this whole first chapter. The elephant in the room is God's people is in slavery. The elephant in the room is their affliction. They're being dealt with horrifying horrific the way they're being dealt with they live under the rule of corruption the government wants them dead he wants to destroy their boys their baby boys and yet we look and God is silent God is God is you know but is God silent is he silent I don't believe he's silent because God is everywhere in every verse of that passage do you wonder sometimes, does God care? Abraham promise is our promise, too. We start with that story, and that story is a part of us. It said, kill all the Hebrew baby boys in the Nile. I'm going to tell you something. God is working even when we don't see him working. God is working even when we don't hear him. God is working even when we don't see him. God is working. And it brings me here. I want to read this. Second chapter 1 through 10. Now a man of the tribe of Levi, I want you to remember that, Levi, married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. We find this, she hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no more, no longer, she got a piper's basket. For him, and she coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her sister, which is Moses' sister, stood at a distance to see what was going to happen to him. But the Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw a basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? She said, Yes, go. She answered, So uh, the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I'm, I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. 
And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. I want you to see something. The next thing, not only is, is we find that, that God, it, it, this, his story is, has a continuance. His story has a providence. God is the provision for his story. God's providence, God's name is not mentioned once. Now we went through the whole first chapter his name is not mentioned once. Now we went through chapter 2, 1 through 10, and God's name is still not mentioned. But we also see that God's provision is seen in the mother that chose to obey God over man by keeping her own baby. Can you thank God for that mother? She chose to keep her own baby. That's God's provision. God's provision is seen in the mother placing Moses in the Nile. Technically, she was doing what the Pharaoh wanted. Throw your baby in the Nile. So she put her baby in the Nile. She just put him in a basket in the Nile. Had technicality there. But God's provision then is that she did that. It was God's provision that his, her, uh, Moses' sister was standing by to see what was going to take place. It was God's provision seen in Pharaoh's compassionate daughter drawing him out of the water. It was God's provision is seen as Moses' sister taking the baby to be nursed by his own mother. Can you imagine this? His mother got paid to nurse her own son. Can you say praise the Lord? <laughs> Sounds like the story of the burr rabbit, right? Throw me in the briar patch. <laughs> She names him Moses, which means drawn out. She named him Moses. means he's drawn out, drawn out of the water. In these first ten verses, God's name does not surface once, but his provision is in every line of the story. We see his provision in the birth to a man and woman from the house of Levi. Why is it important? It's important because the Levitical priesthood Make Moses a priest. If you're not convinced yet, I want you to hear this. I read verse 3 to you. The baby was placed in a basket. His word, the word for basket there is tabah. That word has already been used 26 other times in the scripture, in Genesis, in the Old Testament. Two times here in Exodus. But it's used 26 times in Genesis chapter 6 through 8. We read of an ark, the ark, a tobi covered with pitch placed in the water, saving God's people from death. When Noah built the ark, that word ark was the word toba. They took and they built that ark and they put pitch inside to keep the Egypt and the, uh, the deadly water out. And, and it was the salvation of God's chosen people. And so we find now... There is, uh, that's all passed, you know, hundreds of years have passed, and now there's the need that God lead his people out of Egypt's bondage, out of the world's bondage, and so there's a leader, and if the enemy has his way, he's going to destroy this leader in the Nile, but there's a mother that feared God, and the mother said, I'm not going to let my baby die, and that mother took that baby and put it in a basket, she made the basket, and she formed pitch in it where no water could get in, she put her baby in there and let the baby float down the Nile, and that was a little ark for Jesus. I like, you know, that was a little ark for Moses. We see that the ark is a cover. It was placed in water. 
for the saving of the people from this from from death. Here's the thing I want you to remember. It has always been God's pattern to save his people from that that brings them death. It is is it by chance that one that will lead the Exodus through the Red Sea water will be named Moses which means drawn out of water? I don't think it's happenstance. I don't think it's a coincidence. That his name would be named Moses, the one that draws out of water. That will bring all of Israel through the water to save his people. This leader named Moses, drawn out of water, he's fixing to draw all those people out of Egypt. He's going to take them through the water, the Red Sea, and he's going to take them over to, eventually to the promised land. This is not by half percent. This is a story within a story. This is God telling us something here. Could it be... Could it be that he is showing us God always brings a way, uh, makes a way of escape? Could it be that this way of escape, it always comes by the way of a priest, a high priest? And that high priest is Jesus himself who leads us on to a better exodus, leads us from the more horrific, tyrannical leader than even Pharaoh, Satan himself. What does a priest do? What does a priest do in the Bible? It serves as a conduit. They are a go-between. A priest brings God to the people and the people to God. What was the role that Moses was called on to play in the scriptures? As we will see next week, Moses has, one, uh, has a one-on-one with God. He's talking directly to God. And he asked God, who will I say has sent me? And the answer of God to Moses is to tell them that I am has sent you. In other words, he's going to introduce those people to Yahweh. He said, go tell them that I am has sent you and bring Yahweh to them. And what is the role of Moses? You are to lead my people out, of, out to me. He's to lead them out to him out in the wilderness there. Why? Why is he leading them out in the wilderness? That they might worship God. That's what the priest is supposed to do. He leads them out to worship God. We find what is Jesus God Jesus, our higher priest, do. In John chapter 1, he brings God's people to God. And, and Jesus came to bring God's people to God. And uh, so he brings us to God and God to us. If you've seen Jesus, he said, you've seen the Father. Could it be that these 10 verses refer to this? How does Jesus, how does Jesus take us from slavery to freedom? We go down in the water and we come up in a newness of life. Not freedom just for freedom's sake, but freedom for us to worship God Almighty. It's a powerful story. There's a story within a story. We look at chapter 2 and 11 now. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out where his own people were and watched them as at their hard, in their hard labor. He saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that. Seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked one in the wrong. He said, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midia, where he sat down at by a well. Now a priest of the Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. 
Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue, and they watered their flock. When the girls returned to yell their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And they said, well, where is he? Reuel asked his daughters, why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave him his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, got Moses named, uh, and Moses named him Grisham, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israel groaned in slavery and cried. Now I want you to see something here. I don't know why that's I don't know why passage 11 through 22 is really there. Is it to tell us that God uses corrupt people, evil people, murderers? Moses ended up murdering somebody. David ended up having somebody murdered. Well, I guess if God's going to use anybody, he's going to use sinful people because we're all sinful. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So maybe that's it's telling us that. Maybe he, he's, he's telling us that, giving Moses a feeling that they're going to reject you, Moses. Like, who are you to tell us what to do? Who are you to be our judge? Maybe that's what he's telling us. But I, I don't know. I just kind of lean on the fact that, is there a wrong time to do the right thing? I believe there is. I believe there's times... I believe there's times when we just need to, we need to stay quiet. I think there's times to stand up. I think there was times when, when Jesus just walked through the crowd and kind of disappeared. There's times that they let Paul down and a basket over the city walls. They should have been killed that day. I believe, though, what he's telling us, there is a right timing. And there's a, there's a call. And there's a readiness. I've seen people that, you know, they served in a church and they wanted to be the head leader so bad that they, they jumped at the chance too soon. Or they either split off a group, it almost never works. Because, see, their desire, Moses had a desire, but his desire was not led right. He killed a man in, in the process of trying to set the people free. He was never going to set God's peoples free in the flesh. This was something bigger than Moses. And I'm telling you, church growth is bigger than any man, any pastor, any leader. It's God-ordained, God Almighty. We are humble servants hoping that we can get it right sometimes. But it's, it's timing. It's a call. They said some were called, some were, went, some just packed up their bags and went, you know. But you've got to have a calling. If you don't have a calling to be in leadership for God, you won't stay in it very long. You'll be like those churches that die within three years. You've got to have a calling to stay with it when it gets tough. Stay with it no matter what. So there's a timing, there's a calling, and there's a readiness. Moses was not ready. God took him to the backside of the desert, and he spent a long time there in the backside of the desert, and there he got ready to lead God's people out of Egypt's bondage. God began to prepare him. God began to show him, Moses is not going to be by your power. It's not going to be by your staff. It's not going to be by your words. God Almighty is going to do this thing. You're just going to be, you're just going to be clay in the, in the potter's hand. You're just going to be a vessel I use to deliver my people. 
And Moses made every excuse he could make. I'm not an eloquent man. I can't speak well. We'll see all that. That's the only thing I can get from those verses of Scripture. But the next thing we find, there's the providence of God. I believe we're getting very close to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe as God begins to work in this end time, there's not a devil there's not a world leader. There's not a, a, a somebody's vote that can stop the will of God. God's will will be done, and it, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make people like, how in the world did that happen? Because God wanted it to happen. How could anybody go and take the, one of the biggest uh, world powers, Egypt, and walk in there and walk out with all God's people? It took God Almighty. I'm telling you, there's a greater exodus coming than that. It's when Jesus takes all his Christians out of here. Out of here. He's going to exit us out of here forever and ever to be with him. What a great day that's going to be. And nothing can stop that from happening. Nothing can stop that from happening. And so the next thing is, is not only God's providence and, and God's continuing in God's providence, but it's God's remembrance. And it, we find here, does God care? We find here in the last verse there, God, or the next, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked, we find here, during these many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned of their slavery and they cried for help. Their cry for, their, for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew him. So the question I ask at the beginning of the message, does God, does God care? Absolutely he cares. Does God see? Yes, he absolutely sees what you're going through. Does God hear your prayers? He absolutely does. Does God know where you're at today and what you're going through today? I'm telling you, this has been a, it's been a tough year. I talk about me, but it's been a tough year for a lot of you. You know, it's been a tough year for me, tough month for me. But you know what I know? I know that God cares. The devil can lie all he wants. God cares about what I'm going through and my family's going through. God cares. God hears my prayer. God sees what's going on. God is in control. Under the provision of God, we saw God, even though it appeared him that he was silent. As we look through chapter 1 and, and chapter 2, as it appeared that God was silent, we realized that he was working. I love that song said, he's working when we don't even see it. We're, he's working when we don't even hear it. We're, 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 he's working when we don't even know. God is working. You better believe that God is working in these end times. That God is sovereign and God is in control and nothing can stop God Almighty. Nothing can stop him. And so, is God working? Yes, he's working. And he knows. That word meant when it says God remembers. You'll go, if you remember the message we did about remembrance in, the, in, in Genesis, that does not mean, oh, 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 God almost forgot about us. You ever forget your kid, kid pick up your kid at school? I've been pastoring a church and the parent family went home and left their kid here. I wonder what that kid felt like. Joseph and Mary left Jesus at the temple. <laughs> they left behind. That is not what he's talking about. It's when you see the word remembrance, it's, all, it's usually always connected with the word covenant. And it means 
God is fixing to do something. When Jesus met with his disciples, he said, take this cup. This is my body, which is broken for you. Take eat. This is my blood, which is fixing to be shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What was fixing to happen? Jesus is fixing to go and go to a grave, and he's fixing to empty that grave. And it was going to be the beginning. What, when the children of Israel, they were asked to put blood on the doorpost? What was fixing to happen? They were fixing to leave. So when you see that where God says, put yourself in remembrance, realize you better get your staff in your hand. You better get your loins girded up. God's fixing to move in a reality that you cannot even imagine. And I'm telling you, you say, well, I got a lot of good things going in college now. I got a great marriage. I just bought a house. I've got all this. Don't settle for the world. Don't settle for the world. You're settling if you think this world is all that's worth gaining. This world, you know, to, even the disciples learned to die is to gain. I don't want anything this world's got. I want Jesus. Jesus is the only thing worth living for today. And that's what we need to know today. Today we're going to take communion. We, we really love to do communion more often, but it's, it's become difficult during this COVID stuff. So we're going to do it very simple today. we got these tables up here. Nobody's going to touch your communion. You can take it, and I want you to come up and take it and sand. You take the little bottom piece off, and there'll be a piece of bread in there, unleavened bread. Take the top off, and there'll be the juice there. I want us to take communion today because I want us to put ourselves in remembrance. We're the ones that need to remember. We need to remember that God cannot be defeated. We need to remember that God cannot fail. We need to remember that God is unstoppable. God is unstoppable. We need to put ourselves in remembrance. Even when we don't kind of see him do anything, he's doing something. We need to put ourselves in remembrance that when we can't hear him, and it sounds like he's a million miles away, we need to know that he hears us and he knows us and he knows what we're going through. We need to know that his blood... Just like they put the blood on the doorpost, the death angel passed over. The devil's power is our fear over death. But the disciples, they got over that fear. They realized to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I want us to stand at this time. And I want you to come up and just, we'll start on this side and over this side. I want you to come if you'd like to take communion. This is open to everyone. Maybe your first time here, I want you to come grab a cup and just stand. You stay standing up near the front. Just kind of stay out of people's way. This is not like step one, step two to get you to do anything else. We are going to pray for people today that want to be prayed for in the end. But if you'd like to take communion today, we certainly welcome you today. be anybody that physically can't come if you don't have somebody to pick it up for you raise your hand and we'll bring it to you how many is ready to get out of Egypt <laughs> Woo! 
I don't know that I, I may be wrong, but I've got an expectation in my spirit that God's fixing to do, do something in the next four or four weeks, five weeks that's going to blow this world away. He's going to let them know who's in charge. The world ain't going to like it. The devil ain't going to like it. Do we care what the devil thinks? If I cared any less, I wouldn't care at all. <laughs> I'll just hold this piece of bread up. Jesus held it up before the disciples. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. In other words, fixing to be beaten and striped. And he said, by my stripes, you're healed. If you need healing today, I've seen people healed during the communion service. If you need healing, raise your hand. Let this be your healing today. I want you to pray for my mom's back in the hospital. My wife's home today. Uh, didn't feel like she could come. I believe that he is our healer. He said, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. God, we thank you for this cup. We thank you for this bread. We thank you for the sacrifice for our freedom. God, but we were not free to our own selfishness. We were free to worship you. To worship you. We exist to bring you glory. After that, he took a cup. He said, this is my blood, which is shed for you. Take, drink, and this is for the remission of your sins. Jesus talks about our heart being the door. He stands at the door and knocks. If you'll open your door of your heart to him, if you'll put the blood on the door, God will come into you and God will bless you. Now, he, we're going to find that he leads them out of Egypt and the sole purpose is to worship him. We're going to end worshiping God. I want all of you to worship by singing this song.